This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Property Patter. I'm Fiona Edmund. I'm a partner in the construction team at Charles Russell Speechley's, and I'm joined by Lee Medlock, head of real estate, and Robin Grove, head of real estate, real estate disputes and construction. Today, we are going to be talking about current market trends in the real estate sector. The Bank of England has raised interest rates for the 10th consecutive time. We're now at a 14-year high. Lee, what do you think that this means, this high cost of borrowing means for the real estate market? Well, I mean, cost of cost of money is is, is you know, critical for all businesses, not just the real estate market. Um, it goes to affordability of of running a business. It goes to affordability of uh, of, of, of premises, whether you are uh, trying to buy premises, whether you're trying to sell premises, whether you're trying to uh, let premises. So, I guess. <clears throat> On the sort of operational side of things, the more the higher your business costs you have as a result of you know higher interest rates, the less money you've got in the bank to pay for other things, um, you know such as such as rent. Um, so it may well have an effect or a depressing effect on uh, on rents. But obviously, there's a much wider macroeconomic sort of piece that plays into rental values and, and and property asset values. So I think it's a I think it's a bit more complicated than just saying, you know, the bank of interest rates and, and bank base rates are, are, are going up and, and what does that do? Because you've got the, you know, you've got what why are people investing in property? Why are people locating in different locations? And there are a whole bunch of different reasons that 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 drive those decisions, um, not just interest rates. So so it, you know it's not as simple as that, I don't think. And what about the different asset classes that we have in the in the, in the real estate sector? Do you think they will respond differently? Uh, yeah, I think they will. Um, for for that for that very reason, there are there are times when particular asset classes are popular for uh, investors uh, and developers f- for different reasons. I mean, you know, for example, we've seen the logistics sector for uh, uh, you know a good few years now being. Um, incredibly popular. That's that's driven by a number of factors. I, I'd suggest that's that's driven by the you know obviously the change in in the short term. That's uh, you know the change in, in in how people go about their lives and how businesses go about supplying or getting supplies. And obviously the you know COVID has had a, a huge impact on that and has probably focused people's minds on the supply chain. And the significance and the importance of the supply chain and the location of the hubs of those um, supply chains. So I think that's that's you know that's interesting. But you know some of those markets and the logistics market has also been not not underpinned, but a but a key factor in in that as as a lot of uh, other um, sectors and investment classes has been helped by the availability of 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 and the liquidity of funds. Uh, be that um, you know uh, debt finance coming in from um, traditional debt providers, where, where where everybody knows you know money has been cheap for a very long time, but also a huge weight of private equity money. Um, you know, so that's that's just one example. But again, it's you know different different asset classes are going to be you know going to react in different ways at different times. You know, the hospitality and leisure industry. Um, yeah, 
that has proved um, remarkably um, resilient, despite the you know several years of very strong headwinds that they have that they've had to endure and that they continue to endure. But as an asset class, um, that's still um, in you know for a lot of people, it's still a very attractive um, sector to be in. But you know for lots of different reasons, and you know people may be seeing opportunities. Um, you know that other people aren't seeing so it's, it's again it's quite difficult to generalize robin what's been your experience with the different asset classes and how they've been seen as opportunities well i think um i mean the residential sector the living sector has been uh, has been very uh, popular in terms of an investment class in recent times certainly in terms of build to rent student accommodation um service departments uh, and and those types of asset classes um, clearly the cost of money is crucial to uh, whether those um, appraisals stack up for those acquisitions um, because you know if your borrowing costs go up then your rental uh, income has got to uh, move up uh, correspondingly otherwise you're not going to make the return that you need um, so Undoubtedly, people who are coming to refinance uh, uh, will be feeling the um, feeling the effect of that increase on that uh, that interest rate. Uh, the question is whether there's a stabilisation in the debt market and potentially a little re- reduction in the the cost of borrowing um, that enables them to uh, to refinance and still meet their uh, meet their covenants uh, to be able to, to to get that refinance through. So, I mean, we remain optimistic about that sector um, in terms of the sort of build to sell market. There's a lot of headwinds in that area and uh, undoubtedly the cost of money um, won't, won't help the, uh, the various travails that that, uh, that sector has got. And with all the recent political upheaval we've had and talk of recession, do you think the UK PLC is still an attractive place for foreign investors to put their money? I think it, I think it is. Um, I mean, the... the we hear that uh, lots of uh, overseas investors are um, stockpiling uh, money in the UK, particularly driven by the weakening pound, uh, looking for opportunities and when the time is right that they will, will deploy that money, um, particularly in the private capital sector, are able to move more nimbly um, to, to get hold of those opportunities. Um, I think they are waiting to see the sort of uh, the revaluation of a lot of assets, which probably hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, I think people are still um, <clears throat> seeing how the uh, that revaluation process uh, plays out before those opportunities will present themselves to the people who've got money available uh, to spend and pick up those opportunities. So, uh, you know, people, op- the optimists are probably saying uh, second quarter this year, um, and people uh, range on from there to six months from now uh, onwards towards the end of the year and 2024 is going to be a lot better. So, um, you know, uh, everybody's got to make their own choice as to when, uh, when that strength in the market will come back. Lee, what, what, what are your views on this? Yeah, I think, Fiona, as well, it's been the case for a, a long time. You know, one of the greatest, uh, attract, or one of the greatest attractions of the UK Mark is it's it's stability. It it's still an incredibly uh, safe place to invest. 
it's a you know it's a it's a it's a well organized well regulated uh well structured um you know place to invest despite sort of you know recent uh, economic um uh ups and downs that we've had so i think the fundamentals of, as to why you might in, invest in in somewhere like you know uk plc uh, remain unchanged actually in the it, it, you know in the in the immediate and the in and the long term future actually and, and bear in mind as well there are lots of people who are looking to invest who are able to take a very long term view you know the 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 immediate economic circumstances for some classes of investors are are, are not particularly relevant because they can take that sort of super long view that's not the obviously that's not the case for lots of others but there is there is that class of investors who will in, will will invest you know not not for purely economic reasons and which kind of class of investor is that what what kind of house well, you, you know you've got sort of you know sovereign sovereign wealth funds um are, are a really good example um you know where some of the those guys are sort of taking a 40 50 year view you know you've, you've also got the um traditional um you know uk investors and uk states where where they you know the assets that they hold they they either hold or acquire and, and hold them for that period of time and they're not necessarily hugely heavily geared uh, and they can afford to take that long that long term view but lots of lots of overseas investors um, who are in, uh, investing in the UK for not necessarily the, the greatest economic immediate economic return that they can get are able to 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 make those investments and, and hold them Robin. Earlier, we discussed the rebalancing of land values. How do you see that situation evolving? Um, I mean, I, I think that people are still assessing the the impact uh, of the interest rate changes on their purchases. If you're taking the residential market, um, and in fact, rates are looking as if they may start to come down, which again can delay. Uh, transactions because people wait until they think that uh, think that things may get better for them in terms of fixing rates. Um, so that will have an effect on land values. Um, there is there has to be a period of uh, uncertainty to create the environment where people recognise the reality of the new normal. And I don't think we're through that period yet. Um, uh, you know, you read things about. Uh, land values having come off 8%, for example, I read this week. I, I don't think that's the end of the story uh, for that. Um, but um, uh, and uh, other factors have to be to be plugged into that as well. You know, the changes to the planning system, increased costs, further taxes uh, here, there and everywhere. Uh, and until that can all be played out and factored in, uh, people are going to be cautious about committing to new transactions. And actually, the the new normal makes me think about offices, and that's one topic we haven't touched on. Um, How do you see the office market? How are you seeing the office market play out at the moment? Well, it's an interesting one. I think people, you know, well, I I think the received wisdom is that the jury is still out on on sort of the the office generally, and and a lot of commentators um and and you know a number of the sort of very big um, agency firms are, are, are. beginning to draw or, or or indicating that they they think there will be a quite a split in the market between kind of let's call it sort of super prime grade a um office space and that rather secondary office space and i think quite a lot of commentators are 
seeing that there could be a, a significant uh, divergence in the popularity uh, of that kind of those two kind of classes, if you will. Wind back to the sort of start and the midpoint of COVID. I think everybody was predicting the end of the the office as we know it now. You know, we may look at it from a sort of slightly slightly London centric point of view, but uh, but I certainly don't see uh, the, the end of the office uh, certainly in London anytime soon. It's interesting. There's been a lot of movement in that space, and we see you know buildings being you know restacked and tenants wanting to move around in buildings and rejig their space and in some cases reduce their their footprint or reconfigure their the footprint that they've got so there's a lot of activity from that point of view but the i mean again some of the some of the the agents may have a different view but we're certainly still seeing a lot of activity in the in the occupational market in you know new lettings not necessarily connected with with a, a reconfiguration of of space but clearly there's a there's a lot of um there, there's a lot of that um going on at the moment but in terms of you know, in terms of activity it's it's you know it's quite buoyant and talking to a client the other day who's dealing with with a, a portfolio of out of uh, london offices in sort of uh, secondary towns saying that uh, actually the office letting market's pretty buoyant there that you know they're, they're not seeing uh, anything like the sort of vacancy rates that people are uh, touting in the press yeah i mean that that said i was uh uh, having uh, uh, digesting my supper last night and watching the watching the news, there was um, a, a, an article on that where um, Sage, I can't remember, it was it was one of the Kent uh, towns where Sage had, had had moved in not that long ago to a new office development with a, with a headcount of a thousand people, and they were com- they were coming out of it, uh, and and in the article it was quoted that they had found that. Um, the working from home uh, culture and environment that they were having to deal with meant that that office was no longer required. So, you know, I, it's going to, again, I think, I think the recurring theme of this podcast is it's not the same for everybody at any, at any point in time. So for lots of different reasons, different things are happening, you know, at different times or indeed, sorry, at the same time, it's, it's not, it's, it's quite, a, it's quite a complex fluid picture. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of nuance across the piece and depending on what from what you're saying as well it's sort of quali- quality will out as well in terms of the, what you're wanting to use the space for and get your 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 workforce in and one of the things that i've i've seen a lot in the press is that how esg can form part of that in in terms of wanting to drive people and bring the bring the team teams back into the office space to very much enjoy the social aspect to it um and being a, 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 and as for a sense of well-being do you find that the esg element is i mean there's a lot that cover, is covered by the phrase esg but taking any one of those um robin do you see that that's playing out yeah i mean it's certainly certainly important in terms of um the um, cohesiveness of any business uh, now to, to be focusing on the, the ESG for, for staff and uh, and employees. Um, so, you know, that that is clients are, uh, you know, and ourselves obviously are, are very much focused on that for, 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 for people. Um, it is also very much becoming a factor in, in investors' decisions. Uh, they are putting, uh, putting to task the boards of client companies to ask them what they're doing about ESG on, on every different level, and uh, if they're not getting proper answers, then they you know they're taking steps to uh, to make sure that that happens. Um, so clients are asking us for support in uh, their journey to uh, net zero, for example, 
um, you know, we can help but with our experience uh, and where legal um, mechanisms and, and assistance can, can make a difference to that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because certainly something we're seeing in the construction industry is a lot of focusing on the future proofing of designs. And it is it's future proofing both for the developer who then holds that property, but it is also future proofing it for the subsequent developer who then owns it. So, for example, putting in more piles in a building, which is never, go, never going to be needed for the weight of the original developer. But when the next developer comes along, it will make a much more sustainable development for that developer to then put on another another two floors onto a building, for example. So it does de- require a degree of investment and selflessness from that perspective from the, that original developer. But presumably makes the original ESG uh, calculation more difficult. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you then how do you then balance that, and how do you make sure that you report re- report against that? Robin, we've spoken about alternative asset classes in terms of logistics. What other alternative asset classes do you think are high on the agenda at the moment? Yeah, thanks, uh, Fiona. I mean, I think that as you, as you, as you, as we've said, uh, logistics is going to be back this year, um, but also uh, we're going to be seeing uh, a rise in data warehousing um, and life sciences is still a very hot market. You know, there's relatively uh, few players uh, who uh, who. Um, can get into that specific area. A uh, number are trying, but really the, 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 there's a limited number of players in that market, uh, limited number of opportunities, so still quite a hot market. Um, self-storage would be another one I'd mentioned, and hotels seem to be coming back into to, uh, into vogue. Uh, private capital, again, uh, seeking out opportunities in hotels. Thanks, Robin. And that's a good opportunity to mention a previous episode of Property Patter. We ran a life sciences episode by Louise Ward, one of our real estate partners, where we had Biomed Realty and DTRE come and speak to us about current issues in life sciences. Lee, one of the issues that we're coming across a lot in construction is the availability of power and the cost of power. How are you finding that in the real estate market? Yeah, that's a really good question, Fiona, actually. And and we've seen <clears throat> over the last uh, 12 months, uh, a, a, an increasing uh, focus on that, and I certainly expect there to be that trend to increase. <clears throat> the cost, the cost of power, is, is such now that for most businesses, um, they're in a position where it actually uh, makes financial sense to to look at the alternatives or the possibilities that, that are available to them, and and so we are seeing both landlords and tenants think quite carefully about what they're doing and take some uh, actions uh, that we haven't seen for, well, seen before and actually do a lot of collaboration. So, and, and this is across sectors. So it applies to, um, you know, large sheds, distribution warehouses, data centers, but also, you know, um, the leisure industry and, and, and businesses with, with a sort of a, a, a large uh, real estate footprint, not necessarily on an individual footprint basis, but if you've got a lot of real estate with some spare space, then these kind of solutions are, are, are possibilities to you. So we're seeing landlords, um, you know, retrofitting uh, large buildings with, um, with with lots of solar panels or other electricity generating um, uh, methods. Um, and that's interesting from a from a um, from a technical point of view. That's interesting, and and the methods and the and the and the the kit that they are using to do that, but also the the, the legal matrix that that sits in. So you know, how, how are they going to vary the already in place legal uh, arrangements? Are they how are they going to vary the lease? What are the impacts? How they work around that? So that's 
from a sort of technical legal point of view, that's quite interesting. But clearly, there's a, a movement in that direction. And also, landlords are saying, well, you know, we're starting to see landlords say, well, we want the tenant to source all of its electricity from 100% renewable sources. So how do you deal with that? Oh, by the way, we've got a you know huge amount of solar panels on our roof, and we'd like to sign up. So, so sign up to that. So there's all that kind of stuff. And on the tenant side of things, we're seeing tenants now alive to the alive to this. So I've got a transaction recently where we where there is a tenant looking to completely clad or coat their building that they've been in for the let's say the past 25 years, photovoltaic cells and, and other electricity generating equipment. Um, because of the cost of the power, it happens to be that, that particular tenant is, is sort of quite a heavy power user and it will be a huge saving. And then from the landlord's point of view, hugely beneficial at the end of the term if the tenant decides that they want to move because the landlord's got a super super efficient building. But also I think it demonstrates from a tenant's point of view uh, and an investment point of view from the landlord that you know, the tenant's actually investing heavily in that site and you know they're quite likely to stick around because it's not, it's, not, it's not sort of, you know, the, the, the capital cost is not in, insignificant. So all of that, but also power, we're seeing power purchase agreements uh, and so people with a large number of not necessarily huge sites are able to utilize spare land that they've got uh, with power generation organizations and companies to use that land and gain some benefit, um, putting land that is otherwise fallow um, into use for electricity generation. So that whole power thing, I think, is is going to be really, really significant unless the cost of power um, changes significantly. And, you know, as I say, across all sectors. And I, I know from our own experience, even in, in, in our building, um, you know, the cost of power has gone up enormously. And that's, you know, it, it, lots and lots and lots of different industries, different sectors, the cost of power is... I would suggest one of the most critical uh, costs to those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a real opportunity just from hearing what you've spoken about is the opportunity to collaborate between landlord and tenant, but also a real opportunity to, to um, pursue the ESG agenda in terms of looking for the solar panels, looking to follow to, to go for sort of the best clean electricity supplier. So an opportunity for that as well. Now, Robin, we spoke earlier, or you spoke earlier about the residential market, and that's certainly a market that's had a significant amount of pressure on it. You've mentioned the various changes that we need to make in terms of planning and, and other aspects we need to make for the residential market to thrive. We've got our 15th new housing minister since 2010. That is actually our sixth in the last 12 months. This is all courtesy of the BBC website, I have to say. Um, what do you think should be at the top of, of Rachel McLean's inbox? Well, I, I think the first may be um, dealing with the, the Commons Committee, which I see has been uh, being set up to review the, um, uh, the decision by Michael Gove to relax the 300,000 uh, houses target uh, that, was, uh, that was in place. Um, and, you know, the, the deal he effectively did with the Tory backbenchers uh, in, order to, um, in order to relax that uh, in order to relax that target. So uh, and there's been a lot of commentary in the press about the effect of that on the delivery of new housing. Uh, clearly, there is less incentive for, um, for uh, you know, typically conservative uh, authorities to give consent to enable that housing to be built and the, and the effect of that on uh, supply to particularly younger people. So uh, that is a, a crucial factor, I think, that uh, hopefully she will be looking at. Um, uh, the other issue that uh, the help to buy system has come to an end, the scheme has come to an end, 
and in some areas that was providing support to you know 95% of the buyers on a particular scheme in, in lower income areas. Um, so you know that there is no equivalent um, uh, support system to enable people to uh, find the deposit that they need to get onto the housing ladder. Um, so whether there will be uh, another help to buy scheme uh, is 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 uh, an open question at this stage. So that's probably two quite big ones she may be grappling with uh, at the start of her tenure, uh, or maybe she won't be around long enough to even get you know, get towards them. There is that. Hopefully she'll be in post a bit longer than everybody else. Um, and then just sticking with residential and going to case law, because we are lawyers after all, there's been a recent case of Viva against Williams, which has made it sort of easier for landlords to recover their service charge. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think landlords will, will have breathed a sigh of relief that that came in, in effectively in their favour. Uh, it just means that there is... Uh, the flexibility that uh, is in most leases to change the percentages on service charges to make sure they get uh, 100% recovery uh, is easier to enforce. So um, uh, it will put the onus uh, onto the tenants to, to raise an objection to that. So, um, yeah, it's an important uh, case for landlords. Thank you. So we had we had to get in some case law into this conversation. But um, <laughs> thank you both very much. Um, could I ask you at the end of the year, perhaps we could get together and have an, another look back at actually what the trends did deliver as against what we thought, the, the issues that we identified um, in sure, this podcast. Sure, of course, that would be great. Sure. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this latest episode of Property Patter. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.